When you hear someone's name in connection with a crime, what are your initial thoughts? Do we begin to associate guilt with the evidence we see on television or read in the newspaper? Does it matter if we know the person or not? The world of media has the responsibility to seek the truth and report it. But when the subject of discussion is someone we personally know, it doesn't seem right. Many of us would assume we would have their backs during times like these, but would we really? Today, on the final episode of Lost and Found, we discuss persons of interest and its connection to the Jody case and another infamous Midwestern cold case, and uncover how destructive the label person of interest can be. Welcome to Lost and Found. We don't know anything about anything, actually, in this case. There's very little that is actually known about the Jody Hoosentritt disappearance. Oh, the flowers and the teddy bears and the love notes didn't work. So I go to the next level and I'm going to start to threaten them, hurt them, and that will make them do what I want them to. I just feel like it's part of the job. You need to know that there are a lot of people who know you and you have to be on your guard. From B-Runner Studios and KBVU 97.5 The Edge, because of what they see on TV, and everything gets solved in an hour, they have unrealistic expectations of what an actual person, an actual licensed investigator can do. This is Lost and Found. I'm your host, Tyler Bruner. It's hard to believe we are here, the final episode of Lost and Found. We've been on quite the journey, haven't we? Missing persons cases, the CSI effect, stalking, all have been talking points as we've examined issues related to the case that sparked the questions about investigative processes, the Jody Hoosentrud missing person case. We are here today to dissect another cold case from the Midwest, and this one shares many similarities to the case that brought us all here in the first place. Today, we are looking into the case of Jacob Wetterling. On October 22, 1989, a boy by the name of Jacob Wetterling was kidnapped. Wetterling was riding his bike with his younger brother and another friend to the local video rental store, the Tom Thumb, when a strange man dressed in black appeared. Jacob, his brother, and his friend were all confused as to what was going on. The man told two of the boys to run home before he shot them, but told Jacob to stay. For almost 30 years, this case was cold, and one man became the prime person of interest, and his name is Daniel Rassier. Rassier's life changed forever after his name appeared in the media as a person of interest. This was Rassier's life for a long time, until a man by the name of Danny Heinrich confessed to police that he committed the crime, not Rassier. So why are we focusing on an already solved case? Well, it's because of Daniel Rassier, who was the primary suspect that police focused on 
for years. At the end of Rassier's long driveway, Heinrich took Wetterling, unbeknownst to Rassier. Rassier's property had been searched the day after, but nothing was found. Police again approached Rassier in 2004 and asked him to confess to the murder, which he did not. The Stearns County Police Department had wired Patty Wetterling, Jacob's mom, in an attempt to get Rassier to confess. Again, he denied everything. For years, Daniel Rassier was the only person that the Stearns County Police Department focused on, even publicly calling him a person of interest. This led to the community around Rassier to turn on him. According to the Minneapolis Star Tribune, Rassier, in a recent lawsuit hearing, told a judge the community avoided him. He lost friends, his family was devastated, and parents avoided bringing their children to private lessons, as he was the school's band teacher. Rassier commented, saying, I don't blame the parents at all, because I was made out to be this killer. Interestingly, in this situation, where one person is the primary focus of an investigation, the community starts to connect their own dots. Similar to the Jody Hoosentrup case, this investigation was a national outcry for answers. And when the spotlight was turned to Rassier, the St. Joseph community had their ideas of who did it. Adele Quigley McBride, from episode 2, reveals the psychological explanation for why small communities do this. Yeah, I would say so. Um, so I would think that that's similar to something called belief perseverance. So when people decide that they've um, either found the person that committed a crime or, um, you know, decided about what happened during a particular criminal case, you know, if people share that information and they hold a shared view about um, what occurred or who did it, then they're going to um, stick with that belief and it's going to take a lot more evidence to um, break down that belief if it ends up not being true so with cold cases especially in a small community where their identity is so wrapped up in the group that is their community um, if they have this decision um, that they've sort of made as a group whether consciously or not um, if the cold case has a break in it much further down the line people are going to be extremely skeptical. I think they'll probably be like, well, how credible can that evidence really be? We already really know who did it, know who did it. But, um, you know, even though they weren't convicted, we all know who did it. Um, so it would be, I think, much harder to, um, I guess, it wouldn't necessarily affect the conviction, but I think that it would affect the person who um, people thought did it and so even though if someone else got convicted, they might be like, well, you know, I still have a bad feeling about this other person. Maybe they were involved in some other way. So I, I think that belief perseverance would have a huge impact on it. And also that's linked to this idea of contextual bias or confirmation bias. When people have a belief, this frames how they interpret every other piece of information that they evaluate related to that thing. So um, that's why they would look at new evidence and say, oh, that can't be true because that's not consistent with what I already know. Um, so that's how that kind of thing would persevere 
in a smaller community like that. Her psychological point of view brings to light a scary truth. Whether or not it's discussed in friend circles, small communities tend to think the same about what might have happened in their small town, regardless of new information coming out. This is what is known as belief perseverance. Belief belief perseverance is when an individual or community believes their personal beliefs regardless of new information that comes out. In this case, the community around Rasir pushed him out of their lives. A man who was passionate about being a music teacher suddenly saw his life change. A loving man and friend saw those closest to him question his validity. There's nothing Rasir can do to get those years back. What Rasir is doing now is suing the Stearns County Sheriff John Sanner, former Captain Pam Jensen, and State Bureau of Criminal Apprehension Agent Ken McDonald on the statement that these individuals defamed Rasir and intentionally caused him emotional distress and more. While on the topic of Rasir, it's important to bring up the term person of interest. Within the legal world, there is no formal definition for a person of interest. According to APM report writers Madeline Barron and Jennifer Vogel, who produced the award-winning In the Dark podcast, which examined Rasir's challenge as a person of interest in the Wetterling case. The term emerged in the mid-1990s and is still used to this day. Police will use this term in order to label someone a quote-unquote suspect with some gray area to give some legal protection. Barron and Vogel talked with Paul Rothstein, a professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center in Washington, D.C., to get his take on the term person of interest. And he said, quote, It's a way for police and prosecutors to disguise that they really have some grounds to suspect that a person played some role in a crime but they don't feel they have enough evidence that they want to essentially perhaps defame the person by suggesting to the public that this person has committed a crime or is a full suspect in a crime. In a twisted way, if the police find enough dirt on someone to connect them to the crime, they can label them a person of interest and release their name as such to the public. So, naturally, I wanted to find out more about this term on a local level. I asked Mark Prosser from episode one about why police use this term so frequently and how they start to wean out the pool of names in the person of interest pot. So if it's a, if it's a particular type of incident and uh, sometimes strategically and in working with profilers, law enforcement will release uh, a name of a person of interest um, uh, for a variety of different reasons. Sometimes they're looking for that individual and haven't been able to locate him, so they're asking the public's assistance. Uh, sometimes uh, that individual um, might be known to them, might be known to the community, might be a viable suspect, and, and so they release the name actually to put some psychological pressure on that individual to perhaps cooperate or, or bring, uh, bring this investigation to a culmination. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, so there, there are strategic reasons why law enforcement might release it. If the name is leaked, like quite often you might see in larger uh, jurisdictions or when you have a multi-agency um, 
investigation where, where one agency might want to take the lead with, with their media contacts and things like that, then sometimes that can become very problematic. Uh, because in a majority of cases, and when I say majority, the greatest majority of cases, if you are focusing in on a person of interest, which is the new term for suspect, mm-hmm. um, you don't, quite often you don't want them to know it. Right. Uh, so that you can continue to investigate, do background work, perhaps even watch them, surveil them, things like that. So, so that can be a problem. And so when, when it's leaked, um, sometimes that changes in, and you don't want it leaked. Sometimes that can change an entire investigative strategy. That part is good old-fashioned uh, police work. You, you do interviews. You talk to people that know them. You talk to what you call uh, primary witnesses. Uh, primary witnesses might give you other names. Those are secondary witnesses. And you want to talk to anybody and everybody who can give you information about that individual or those individuals. And then you create a timeline. What it, where Can you piece together where they've been for however many hours you need to piece, depending on when this crime occurred and when you're doing these interviews? And, and then you do everything you can to collect physical evidence from them in, in a lawful way. Uh, to see if any of that matches any potential forensic ev- evidence you might be getting at a crime scene. Uh, so you're looking at background information. You're looking at timeline, where have they been for however many days or hours uh, you need to go back. And then you're looking to see if you can place them uh, physically, by witness or forensically, at the scene uh, or with the victim or any type of relationship. So it, it's... Um, that's kind of back to the basics. You, you, you put together a story and summary of who they are and where they've been for a certain period of time. As Prosser puts it, he is able to assert psychological pressure on a potential suspect to come clean and confess by releasing their names to the public. Does this method always work? No, but with the help of the community, Prosser has been able to catch suspects and arrest them in a few days of releasing information into the public. But what surprised me, and even Prosser, is some believe he is too cooperative with media outlets. Yeah, and the truth is, in my career, the criticism of my administration has been that we are too cooperative. Not that, not that we don't give enough, but that we cooperate too much. That's interesting. So you cooperate too much with the public. That's actually kind of interesting. With the media. Oh, the media. With, with journalists. Okay. That we shouldn't talk about things, when in fact it's the law that we have to. So, so where where have you gotten that backlash from? Is that from like the public, or is that from like outside of? Storm oh no, Lake? that's that's from citizens, uh, community members, and it's not uncommon for police chiefs and sheriffs here that people don't want bad things said about their community. That's the that's the basis of it. So don't say anything when, in fact, the law and the rules of ethics say people have a right to know. We've talked a lot about this brand new case today. So let's bring it back a little bit. I spoke again with a connection of mine, Scott Fuller. He has a lot of insight about the Jody case that I never knew existed until now. Like the fact that Jody did indeed receive harassing phone calls, slightly nodding towards our idea that Jody was stalked before she was abducted. I I do think it was kind of an anomalous case because of who she was and because of where the MCPD was at the time. They're almost a perfect storm, to use a cliche, for this not being solved. I mean, Jody's name was in the phone book. Imagine this. 
she's, you know, I've talked to contemporary TV news anchors or modern TV news anchors, I should say. Uh, they would never be publicly listed on, on Facebook with their personal details to say nothing of here is your phone number and here is your apartment number. And uh, it, it's it's terrifying. Um, Jody, and I'm, I'm fairly confident this is true. It's based on what she told the people she golfed with on that Monday, uh, the day before she disappeared. She said, I've been receiving harassing phone calls and I can't remember the exact word that was used, but uh, like disturbing and uh, phone messages to the point where she was going to change her phone number the very next day. So it makes you wonder what was on her answering machine when she got back from her trip down to Iowa that that uh, that weekend. But in any event, anybody in Mason City at the time is a suspect, basically, because she would have been she was on television and she was easily accessible for anybody who had a phone book. But. What I wanted to know was Scott's take on John Van Syce. Throughout the entire Jody Hoosentrude investigation, Van Syce was the one individual that the community circled back to as a person of interest. Now, to be clear, we have never been able to contact John himself to get his side of the story or his emotions during that time. But Scott has firm beliefs that John is indeed not the best suspect in this case. It almost, after a certain period of time, became laziness, I think, on the part of the press, because he's such an easy suspect from the outside. But it turns out he's not really an easy suspect. Um, it turns out that, you know, I found the woman who, who stayed silent for 24, 25 years and first came forward just recently uh, with a story that she was walking with John Van Syce. And that would have been about 6 or 6.30, 7 o'clock sometime in there that morning that Jody disappeared. Well, that narrows his timeline quite a bit. To be able to do what he did at 4 or 4.30, somewhere in there, um, dispose of her body in a place, in a way where it was never found, and be back physically in his bedroom, sounding like he was sleeping when, when this woman called him to, to exercise two hours later, would be... A, I, I think that that makes it difficult. Doesn't make it impossible. John Van Syce still could have killed Jody Hoosentrude. But I think once you look into him, he's one of the worst suspects in this case. Uh, and yet he persists. And a lot of that is just media down through the years. Some of that may not be of, of ill intent. Like when you first, when you're assigned to report on a story like this and you're 23, 24, first or second job at high school, and it's a Jody Hoosentrude anniversary story or it's some kind of like the search warrant comes up or whatever it is, and you do just basic background through your station's computer past reporting database, and you find this guy, you might roll his name in there again and say, you know, John Van Syce, still a person of interest, uh, still lives in Arizona, and that just perpetuates things further. So um, the media, I think, uh, let's just say this, if somebody, if somebody is arrested for this who is not John Van Syce and convicted. Imagine what this man's life has become because of something that he, he didn't do. He's the only one with the alibi. Like, who has an alibi That's at true. that time of the morning? You know, like, most of us don't have an alibi unless we're, we're married or unless somebody happens to be with us, but most people are asleep. Just imagine if Amy hadn't called Jody at 3.50. That's how we know she was physically there. Um, there were a couple of phone calls that this woman, this workout friend of John Van Sice's made, one to his house and one from a payphone that was outside of his house as they went walking. Imagine 
if they hadn't gone walking that day or if those two phone calls hadn't been made, we can only assume that police have checked all that out and verified it because we don't have access uh, to that. But uh, it's true that he's not alibi, but he's close. He's got the best alibi of anybody who could be associated with this case so far, as you as you bring up. And yet most people, and this will be true until it's solved or, or not, most people think he did it because he was older, because of how the case was reported in the media. And um, if he didn't do it, I mean, that's John Van Syce had and has his flaws, but that would be that'd be pretty tragic. This thought process echoes what Steve Ridge thinks as well. Steve spent around two weeks talking with John in person in Arizona and has some takeaways that are worth sharing with all of you. Well, uh, I guess it's against the backdrop that as I studied the case, while uh, the finger is most uh, prominently pointed at John, my research uh, actually showed that uh, there might be two people beyond John who actually had more circumstantial evidence against them than John. Uh, and, and in particular, in his case, he was a good friend. The other uh, uh, suspects, in my mind, not really suspects, persons of interest, but mm-hmm. potential suspects, mm-hmm. um, actually have uh, more circumstantial evidence that I have uh, found, and yet they're, they have not been prominent. So I went into this kind of thinking, gosh, it, it just seems like, John Van Syce is too easy an answer, and we do know from our investigation that the police immediately focused on John Van Syce, given some of the tips they had. Some some information may have been faulty that led them to believe that. So it was several months before. I mean, they, they were looking at other people, but mm-hmm. not seriously at the outset. And when you lose time like that, that's very valuable time yeah. in terms of, uh, you know, really being able to talk to other people. Yeah, no, I no, exactly. And, yeah. or sorry, were you going to say something? Yeah, well, I was, I was also going to say, so I guess in terms of the actual uh, interview and time spent, and, you know, I, I, I spent a long time. I mean, I, I, I spent more than 11 hours interviewing him, and then I would say there was an additional amount of just social time. And uh, I, I think I counted the other day that I've had 56 seven phone calls with he and his wife. And, uh, you know, it's not unusual to get a text from one of them every other day. I mean, we, we, we talk a lot and they know that I have gotten sort of a new perspective out there. Uh, I think they're very pleased with, you know, sort of the statement and how it's been received in the community and a lot of stations around, you know, I've done, uh, I think I've done 15 television stations. I mean, uh, and then, you know, I've heard from 48 Hours and 2020 and Dateline NBC. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. uh, there, it's, there, there's a lot of interest. But uh, the point is, what I found most striking was the fact that we all see John Van Syce, you know, through the lens of television. And it, it almost becomes so repetitive that, that we see him as a monster, right? I mean, we <laughs> that's the way he looks on TV. It's like we've already judged this guy to be guilty. In fact, I think he's sort of guilty until proven innocent at this point. I really do. But mm-hmm. when I sat with him and his wife, you know, I reflected on how human they are. You know, like these are human beings, as, as are all people that are involved in any uh, kind of crime. You know, nobody wins at crime. Uh, the perpetrator doesn't win either. Um, you know, and, and 
you know, they, they don't deserve as, uh, perhaps as good a break as uh, a victim does. But nonetheless, they're still human beings, and it may well be that if they're uh, tried and convicted and sentenced, uh, uh, some thought's going to have to be uh, given about uh, reintegrating them into society at some point. And it, only one person of interest, Tony Jackson, uh, is now doing life in Stillwater Prison up in Minnesota for having been convicted of four rapes. Um, and he was living in Mason City at the time of the abduction. So he's at least on the list as a, as a person of interest, although he, he essentially has uh, uh, sort of been, he was sort of cleared by police early on, probably by virtue of a uh, polygraph. But, but I'm not sure most people realize that John Van Sice took two polygraphs. Um, he, uh, uh, he actually did... Um, he actually was hypnotized. He agreed very early on to be hypnotized, which is, you know, that's not very typical. And that's very, it's almost like, you know, you're putting something on truth serum or something. But he felt like maybe he had seen or heard something or what have you that would come back to mind. So he was, you know, eager to eager uh, to cooperate. And essentially, John Van Syce passed all three. I mean, you know, it's like, He's had the most scrutiny, and he's come away clean, and there's never been enough evidence to, uh, you know, to charge him. I'll admit, I was a little hesitant to bring John into the light, because I have not had his side of the story to share with all of you. Without that, it was hard to make assumptions about his character and attitude in 1995. But it's hard to look past the similarities of Jody's case and Jacob's case. Both had a man who was labeled a person of interest almost immediately by police. Both were challenged in some capacity by their communities, and both had to radically change their lives because of this label. The big point is the person of interest label. Even though we are legally protected to have a fair and speedy trial, according to the Sixth Amendment of the US Constitution, and considered innocent until proven guilty, being labeled a person of interest gives the police some leeway to find something that connects that person to the crime without calling them an outright suspect. It doesn't help media stations either. When a person of interest is revealed to the public and the case goes cold, media organizations have no other choice but to continue to talk about that person until more news breaks. This recycling of the same name in the news brings forth confirmation bias. Which, if you didn't know, confirmation bias is... So when people have this other information, they seem to interpret the case evidence differently. So if people are discussing it outside of the actual courtroom, then they're going to think differently um, as jurors or whatever. And then um, also when you have you know, someone who has been um, sort of pinned down as the suspect, the police will stop looking for other people and they'll start compiling evidence against this person and that can be problematic because they don't, they'll ignore any exonerating evidence and try and find only incriminating evidence. So every time Rassir's name reappeared in the news in connection with the Wetterling case, the community around him reaffirmed with them themselves that he had something to do with the crime. Despite the fact that he had nothing to do with the crime, 
community members jumped to condemn. I think one of the things from your, your podcast, too, that, that you, you bring up that I think is, is really on the money is that aspect of the media. Because the police investigation is supposed to be a little bit messy. How are they going to get it right right away? You know, think about Jody's case from the standpoint of MCPD. You're processing the crime scene at the apartment complex. You're just getting into this thing, interviewing neighbors. Um, and then here comes this guy who says, I was the last person to see Jody. Of course he's a suspect. Of course he is. He's the, he's the number one suspect. So they bring him down to the station. They interview him. But John was out that very same day. He, he happened to have that close to an alibi. Um, so the cops in John Van Sice initially acted totally responsibly. Of course you're supposed to interview the guy who raises his hand and says, yeah, I saw her last night. But that was just perpetuated in the press. And, and then the, the rumor mills, you know, the, in Mason City, the small town, you know, game of telephone, where all of a sudden people thought he did it just because he made, he made a big mistake in, in showing up at his friend's apartment and said, she was with me last night. You know, if he did it, why on earth would he do that? If he killed Jody, why on earth would he show up at the, the crime scene and present himself on a silver platter to police? But people don't think of it that way. You know, they they we don't like not knowing. We don't like not having the answer. And John Van Sice gives us at least an answer where we don't have to think about it. Yeah, he did it. We just haven't proved it yet. While this case was still considered cold, the lack of eyewitnesses played a big part in why the Wetterling case went cold in the first place. Being in the middle of nowhere in Minnesota, it's hard to tell whether or not anyone would have seen Heinrich or the boys late at night. One of Adele Quigley McBride's main areas of study is exactly this, eyewitness misidentification. She says without a solid eyewitness, cases like Jacob's go cold every year. Well, so sometimes eyewitnesses can actually send police on the wrong track from the beginning. So if an eyewitness gives them information and they start honing in on a suspect um, that isn't actually the person, that can mean that the evidence that is available to find the real suspect is actually disappearing. And so other eyewitnesses or forensic evidence or anything like that, um, that if it's not collected almost immediately, will go. Um, and so if they miss that opportunity, they will find it very hard to convict somebody further down the line. But then in, in a lot of cases, there aren't eyewitnesses. Um, and so when there isn't an eyewitness, they really have nothing much to go on. Um, they might know where the crime occurred. Um, they might have some evidence from the person who was, you know, the crime was committed against, but um, if they don't have an eyewitness, that can be really difficult. Or if they knew there was an eyewitness and they don't find them immediately, um, even a few weeks after a crime occurred, um, an eyewitness's memory is going to deteriorate. Um, and it's surprising how how quickly their memory will go and how how much of a really important event they will forget. Um, particularly if it ends up being in the news or something like that, they will receive all this other information um, from the news or from people they've talked to about it. 
and eventually their actual memory for the crime is no longer what actually happened, but rather all the other evidence that they've gathered since then. Um, so the reason that um, eyewitness identification can be problematic for cold cases is simply that you know people's memory is fallible. Um, everybody what thinks that they'd like to remember you know important things like a crime, but they typically aren't very good at it. And if they don't get the eyewitness right away, then this might mean that they don't find a suspect or they don't find the correct suspect. And that can lead to cold cases. And let's not forget, Jacob Wetterling was accompanied by two other boys, so they must have been able to identify Heinrich, right? Well, the biggest factor working against the boys was first, it was dark out, and second, Heinrich was wearing a mask of some sort and black clothing. The only person that could have gotten a clear image of who Heinrich was would have been Jacob. Couple all of that with him showing off his gun, and the other boys never had a chance to identify Henrik. Well, it depends really on how good a look they got of the person. So often people will witness a crime from afar, and they'll only have a very general idea of what the person looks like. If they happened to um, get you know, a really close look at the person, and they weren't wearing a mask, and you know, the lighting was good, and the person wasn't intoxicated, you know, all, if all of these things were aligned in such a way that they got a good look at the person, I would say they'd probably remember their face for quite a while. And by quite a while, I mean they'd probably be accurate for a few weeks, um, maybe a couple of months if they um, have a particularly good memory. Um, so the person would probably look familiar to them if they saw them again for quite a while. But if they didn't get a good look at them, I would say that almost immediately, unless there's a distinctive feature that they were able to find on that person's face, like a scar or something like that, then almost immediately their their memory for this person is unreliable. Um, so if they got a good look, I would say, yes, their, their memory is going to last a while and they can be seen as a fairly reliable witness, but most of the time that's not what happens. It's, it's usually dark or they're far away from the person. Um, so typically what they have is a general description of what they saw. Um, and then, you know, that's why we end up with all of these eyewitness misidentification cases is that they know that they saw somebody who was African-American and tall and heavy set and wearing a white T-shirt, but that could describe a lot of people. Um, and so they might not be very good at, them in a lineup or a show up. Yeah, right. Well, and I think what what might also fit into that kind of category of misidentification is the fact that uh, someone witnesses a murder, they see all the gory details of whatever happened that night, and they try to like push it out of their mind because it's such a traumatic uh, instance. Is is that is that like normal for cases like that? Um, well, actually, so people can try and do that but um your memory is your memory you can't prevent yourself from remembering stuff you can prevent yourself from rehearsing it if you don't want to think about it um but you can't make yourself forget something um you can prevent yourself from revisiting that information though so um you might not practice recalling it 
um, unless the police require you to. Um, so, but there is evidence that if, say, a weapon was present at the crime scene or something like that, you'll be worse at recalling the person's face because you were focused on the weapon because that's where the most danger was. So it's more about where your attention was during the time um, rather than what you refused to remember. Jody Hoosentrude is still missing as of the time of this recording. Almost 25 years have gone by and we might never figure this case out. Steve Ridge has been the public's biggest motivation. He has talked with John, another person of interest, Tony Jackson, and even found video footage of Jody three days before she was kidnapped. Yet, with all of this national attention and continued support, this case remains cold. But the hope is, through podcasts like this that work to raise more questions and look for the answers, we can hopefully solve this case and continue to understand the complex world of cold cases. I started out this podcast wanting to solve this cold case once and for all. But as I continued to develop this podcast, I learned I had a lot of questions about how investigations really worked. And I knew you all did too. While we got nowhere close to solving this case, we sure did learn a lot about what it takes to solve a cold case of this caliber. While this podcast is over for now, I urge you all to continue to learn more about cold cases, investigations, and crime. Our time together is over, but hopefully we will be back for season two of Lost and Found. And who knows, maybe then we'll solve a cold case. From everyone at B-Runner Studios, KBVU 97.5 The Edge, and The Alternative Edge, we thank you for listening and enjoying Lost and Found. Season 1 was produced, edited, and performed by me, Tyler Bruner. Additional help came from Andrea Franz, Tammy Bruner, Kay Wibben, the KBVU staff, and the community of BVU. For now, I say goodbye and thank you to anyone who tuned in to listen to Lost and Found. My name is Tyler Bruner, and this has been Lost and Found.